0: Welcome to Impact Medicom's podcast series on COVID-19 immunization. I'm your host, Anna Christofides. In this episode, we discuss the pharmacist role in immunization against COVID-19 and how we can better protect our most vulnerable populations. Our guest on today's episode is Ajit Johal, who is a clinical instructor for the University of British Columbia Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences program. Ajit has been providing immunizations and clinical education since 2012. In 2018, he started an organization called Immunize.io with a mission statement of Taking our best shot at immunizing the world. Through Immunize.io, he has worked with numerous organizations and communities to address vaccine hesitancy and improve access to vaccinations. Hope you enjoy it. So thanks so much, Ajit, for joining us today to discuss the role of pharmacists in the fight against COVID-19 and how they can aid in protecting our most vulnerable populations. So to start, I wanted to ask, what has been the role of pharmacists in vaccine delivery and how have you seen this role evolve during the pandemic?
1: Well, first and foremost, thank you, Anna, for for having me. I think it's just a wonderful way to, to educate and to get information across, especially in a time where Good quality information is is hard to find, so I'm I'm definitely happy to be here and talk about the role of pharmacists in the COVID nineteen pandemic. So, the first thing I want to say is pharmacists have really stepped up to provide uh, access to to vaccinations for their communities um, across Canada and the United States. I mean I'm a Canadian based pharmacist based in British Columbia. And the interesting thing is we go back in the timeline, and when the pandemic first hit in in March of 2020, and there was lockdowns and uncertainty, and we weren't really sure what we were dealing with, pharmacists and pharmacies stayed open. Uh, We remained uh, providing in-person care, and it was just such a a logical choice to have pharmacists really play a huge role in uh, providing COVID-19 vaccinations. So initially, when the vaccines rolled out, especially here in, in Canada, it was such a new vaccine, and and I, I say it in a way that's not to take away that safety and effectiveness, because they're you know they're incredibly safe and effective vaccinations, uh, the the mRNA vaccines and the viral vector vaccines. But the challenge often comes with rolling it out and tracking, and anytime you have a new vaccine product, it typically uh, would benefit from public health oversight. So that's. How it started here is the first initial doses, and there was limited supply, as you can imagine. So the first few months of the pandemic and the, when the vaccine became available, it was really run through public health. and, and pharmacies were not providing doses, but pharmacists were being uh, contracted by public health. so we were working alongside public health nurses, physicians to administer these uh, these vaccines uh, right when they first became available. So that was really valuable, I think, for, for myself and my colleagues to be able to handle these vaccines, educate patients, go through the consent process, uh, provide aftercare, monitoring, education. And as we needed to deliver more vaccinations, then community pharmacies became uh, hubs to improve access. And that that really helps, you know, looking at what a successful mass vaccination campaign is. And Perhaps this is the the biggest vaccination campaign in in the world's history. is is a mixed model works really well. So having these mass sites are really good. And in BC, pharmacies started to come up as pilot sites. So I have a family-owned pharmacy practice. Uh, We have three sites that were provided vaccinations, two of which were part of the first 50 pilot sites to do some of the mRNA vaccines in August. Keeping in mind, we were able to do the AstraZeneca vaccine In the spring of 2021, which was a really valuable tool because those vaccines didn't need that type of storage, uh, preparation, stability. Uh, They were like your traditional vaccines in terms of fridge stability. And I think these vaccines, uh, specifically the the Chadox, AstraZeneca vaccine, um, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which didn't quite make its way to Canada, but the AstraZeneca vaccine provided an excellent opportunity to get people vaccinated sooner and get them protected. So I think um, that was a really valuable learning exercise for, for pharmacists doing the AstraZeneca vaccine. And then eventually we began to handle the mRNA vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna while still doing some AstraZeneca vaccines as well. And it was interesting when we started, the uptake had hit sort of a, a quote unquote plateau. And then we saw an uptake and, and that came in the form of mandates. So in an ideal world you wouldn't need a mandate people would do the right thing mainly for themselves and for others uh, however that wasn't the case uh, we weren't hitting the the sort of the the percent vaccinated needed to reach herd immunity so we had to uh, introduce some mandates in in the provinces so as soon as that became available in bc the vaccine passport then we saw an uptake of immunizations but what I found really interesting is when we canvassed individuals about why they waited so long for vaccination or had that conversation. Not all of them were, you know, sort of motivated by mandates. It was a lot of it had to do with access, technology, uh, comfortability, uh, where they felt safe and comfortable getting a vaccine. A lot of them felt comfortable at their community pharmacy, which again illustrates the role of pharmacists as vaccination providers. So. That was sort of the first and second doses. Then we ran into the next sort of cohort of patients, which was third doses for immunocompromised patients. So these individuals, unfortunately, and we'll get into this later into the show But they don't get as good of a response with two doses. So, a third dose was provided as per the NASI guidelines after their second dose. And we had that cohort come through in about November and December. And then January was boosted. So, again, additional doses for additional protection, specifically Omicron, which changed the game. Not necessarily, a lot of people think it's more contagious, but it has a bit of an immune escape. And by elevating your neutralizing antibodies and having additional doses of a vaccine, uh, you kind of help mitigate uh, that immunoscape, which contribute to uh, mild, moderate illness. So that was a huge cohort of individuals that pharmacists um, had to vaccinate. And we're continuing to do so uh, at this current time, uh, providing uh, booster doses to uh, eligible members of the population. I've personally been involved in the vaccination campaign. So I've been a frontline immunizer right from the beginning, and I've played a big role in raising awareness. So I've done a lot of media on the importance of completing the series, so getting your second dose of vaccination. I also uh, did a spot on, uh, on on national news about Mixing and matching. So, for those who got the first dose of the the ChAdOx AstraZeneca, the viral vector vaccine, should they go with the same one, or should they mix it with an mRNA vaccine? And ultimately, you know, that was really up to patient preference. I I really came across and said they're both excellent options. They'll both one acts as a prime, the other acts as a boost. They'll improve your vaccine response. Um, but really, ideally, it's just personal preference. Some people prefer to keep it the same because of tolerability. Some people may want to mix for a potential uh, increase uh, in antibody response, but both of them um, have very good protection against our main endpoint, which is severe disease and hospitalization.
0: That's great. Thank you so much, Ajit. I had a question about, you know, what is the usual response to COVID-19 vaccination just in the general population? This is a, a
1: very interesting question because an immune response has a number of, of layers. And ultimately because our knowledge of disease and vaccination is so novel, we really haven't established what we call true correlates of protection. But that being said, we do have real-world data that show that two doses of an mRNA COVID-19 vaccination is about 90% effective in immunocompetent people. And really, the number we look at is is severe disease hospitalization. And that number holds, and it's most likely due to what we call the memory B-cell response. So anytime your body encounters a virus or an infection, uh, immediately, what it does is it starts getting into your your nose and upper airways and starts replicating. And as it's replicating, it's basically a race between bioreplication and your body's ability to to manufacture antibodies and uh, and suppress it. So that could come as you know neutralizing antibodies. But when you look at severe disease hospitalization and this sort of durable response for those who' got two doses, it's the b cell's ability to to produce antibodies to to fight that off. So, When we're looking at the Delta variant, I mean, that's an incredibly effective vaccine um, against uh, severe disease hospitalization, which is really the endpoint that is causing a lot of our shutdowns and lockdowns. If we look at what is the thing we fear most is having our hospital systems overwhelmed. And how does that happen is when people get severe disease hospitalization from COVID-19. So very, very effective vaccines, uh, especially if those who are immunocompetent because they have the ability, they have the machinery, as they like to call, to seroconvert and also um, have the ability to, to use their memory B cells to mount antibodies uh, should, it, should they encounter the virus.
0: So in, in that case, are there certain groups of people who may have a reduced response to vaccination and what might be the reasons for this?
1: Well, you bring up a really good question because, as I mentioned earlier, The third dose of the vaccine uh, was for immunocompromised individuals. So anytime your immune system is not functioning as it normally would be, it's less responsive to vaccination, and it's actually more vulnerable for severe disease hospitalization. So the really challenging part about about this demographic, and and as we get into this sort of pandemic off-ramp and and onto the endemic on-ramp... We want to be very mindful and and empathetic of of not leaving these individuals behind because since they don't have the ability to seroconvert, they're not going to produce as much neutralizing antibodies. Furthermore, their ability to mobilize memory memory B cells and and sort of memory immune responses are also reduced. Furthermore, to that point, because their immune system is not uh, as, as robust as those who are immunocompetent, We have a higher propensity, and this is sort of what we've seen in in certain areas, is higher chance of of variance. So this sort of uh, limited selective pressure on the virus, but not so intense that it can clear it, allows the virus to stay in a human host for long periods of time and develop these sort of uh, adaptive mutations that allow it to survive longer, potentially leading to uh, variants that have sort of escape capabilities from the vaccine response. So what we really need is more tools in the toolkit. So I always uh, feel feel very uh, empathetic for immunocompromised patients because you know we're already doing a third dose, and now they're coming up for their booster. Because our immunocompetent population is two doses and a booster. Our immunocompromised, and this is the current guidelines as we look at it now. Our current population need three doses in a booster, and it just comes down to how many doses of a vaccine are we going to give them. And really, we need uh, you know new modalities to deal with uh, the sort of lack of vaccine unresponsiveness, both for the individual and for us as a collective to avoid you know, the generation of variants.
0: So what are some examples of people who might have be immunocompromised and around what percentage of the population does that encompass?
1: It's a really good question. And I always direct, so this was always a bit of a gray area. So if people would say they're immunocompromised, you know, they would say they're, they're going through chemotherapy, which is, of course, depending on the therapy itself, how immunosuppressive it is. Uh, some people would say diabetes, which technically diabetes does cause some sort of uh, immune system decline, but what is the true definition of immunocompromised? And I think we got a really good look at that when the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations and our local health authorities defined who exactly is in this category. So it's really those on immunosuppressant therapies. So those with solid organ transplant, taking anti-rejection drugs, uh, chronic chronic inflammatory diseases. So those taking biologics, those with congenital or acquired immunodeficiency. And from the pharmacy side, the immunosuppressant therapy is something we can see right away. Cancer patients on chemotherapy, so active chemotherapy, blood malignancies, kidney disease. And again, I really, for a more exhaustive list, I would uh, uh, direct colleagues to the, the NASI classification because that's where it really got pretty granularized. Uh, in terms of the population, what we uh, estimate, you know, in Canada, it's, it's tough to say, but we can kind of extrapolate from the U.S. population where about 3% of the U.S. population really have these suppressed humoral or cell, cellular immunity uh, responses uh, from, from health conditions or medications. And going back to what I was saying earlier, humoral responses are really good for having those memory cells screen antibodies. And cellular immunity is really good for immobilizing cytotoxic T cells for uh, basically eliminating uh, cells in the body that are infected with virus. So very integral parts of the immune system that are you know, vital for preventing severe disease hospitalization account for a good portion of the population three percent may not seem like a big number but if we drop that into the Canadian population of 30 million you know we get about 1 million people so uh, it's quite a lot
0: yeah that's that is a lot and so how do we protect these people and and really how are they impacted by you know this in terms of their quality of life and so on it's a huge
1: impact on their on their quality of life. I think that uh, the one thing is a lot of us uh, who have the, the privilege of being uh, immunocompetent and being vaccinated are very frustrated with restrictions, uh, very frustrated with the way life has changed in the pandemic. But imagine if, you know, it's one thing to not be able to do stuff because you can't, but it's another when, you know, you're afraid to do so. And you know, again I really feel for these for, for my immunocompromised patients because they're very dependent on population immunity. You know, they they can't mount as good of an immune response. And especially as we move away from the pandemic, going to endemic and restrictions start opening, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of you know sadness in this population because they feel like they've been left behind. So you know, it seems like vaccines have done an incredible job. They're an incredible tool in fighting the pandemic. But unfortunately, it's just not enough to move everybody out. So we need we do need additional tools in our toolkit and uh, they are coming uh, available.
0: In terms of the use of these prophylaxis type of therapies, in what conditions do you see pharmacists being involved and in potentially delivering these?
1: Well, I think that with these prophylaxis types therapies, they're a little bit different than traditional vaccines. And and I said this before with traditional vaccines and mRNA vaccines, so I I certainly think there's capacity and potential for pharmacists to play a big role in delivering uh, this therapy, especially administering it. But one of the challenges, of course, is is identifying eligibility. So typically, for the immunocompromised cohort who are eligible for a third dose of a vaccine, this was uh, sort of a collaborative effort between the Ministry of Health and the patient specialist, so there has to be some sort of, I guess, very clear uh, qualification criteria for individuals to qualify for this therapy. Because as you know, people are, are very afraid of COVID. It's it's a very uh, scary illness, and there may be, and I'm cert- I'm certain there will be individuals who will want this type of treatment just to be safe. But we have to be we have to be safe as well, and and really uh, allocate it uh, not only based on equity, but also safety and who it's been studied in. So I think the first thing is, if pharmacists are going to be involved in patient identification eligibility, they need to have full access to specialist notes, patient charts, medical histories. And if that's not going to be possible, because often it's not possible, then the specialist needs to come with a referral. There has to be some sort of screening process so that when they do come to the pharmacist for administration, uh, the eligibility is clear. The second thing is with immunoglo- like uh, sort of prophylactic therapy of antibodies, they're typically very thick and viscous, right? So your vaccine, I can inject it into your deltoid, but for this one, uh, it would have to be into the glutes. And uh, the two antibodies involved in Shield, uh is, is two different antibodies, and it's one into each glute. And uh, so that's a, a different route of administration than what pharmacists are used to. Um, of course, the landmarking, it is the same. However, you may want some sort of a uh, uh, more private area, for example, like a, a room that could be uh, closed, like a consult room, just because people will have to disrobe a bit more than they would uh, if they were just getting a traditional injection, which even then, if people aren't wearing the right shirt, and they have to take it off. Uh, that should still be available. But in the, in the sort of the, uh, the dorsal gluteal, uh, if it's going in there, uh, they will have to, um, Again, they don't have to drop their pants completely, but they will have to take their pants down a little bit for the immunizer to provide the injection. Um, And then the other one is storage as well. So certain storage considerations, usage to avoid wastage uh, is critical as well. So There's always this issue between inventory storage and wastage versus access. So do I wait for somebody to come in and then order it? Or should I have it in stock so I'm immediately able to provide it? Um, hopefully it kind of lands somewhere where there's sort of an appointment-based model and flagging so that uh, pharmacists have uh, the ability to provide easy access to this therapy.
0: Makes sense. Yeah, very detailed and good explanation. Thank you. And so have you had any patients under your own care that you feel would have benefited from this? And could you give us some examples?
1: Yeah, I think the best example is in November and December of this year, when the immunocompromised cohort who qualified as for the NACI guidelines came in for their third dose, that extra dose. I think every single one of those patients could certainly have benefited from a, a prophylactic treatment like this, because they've got to come back for their fourth dose. And, you know, they're just you know, they they want more protection and, and, they, and they understand the risk and they have been told by other specialists, their physicians, that they're at greater risk for severe disease hospitalization. So I think that entire demographic, obviously anybody who's undergoing any uh, aggressive cancer treatment, because the thing is, sometimes they might be immunocompromised for a certain window of time. So those undergoing chemotherapy, if, you know, once they're, hopefully an ideal situation, the cancer uh, becomes uh, put put into remission. And then after those cycles of chemotherapy, their immune system will rebound. So they'll actually be able to get uh, a a bit of function back. So it'd be really nice to protect them during this window so that, you know, they're already burdening a lot. I mean, chemotherapy is is harsh on the body. It it takes an emotional toll. So I think it's a a great group. Uh, Patients in in cancer uh, clinics uh, would, would certainly be excellent candidates for this.
0: Great. And how might such an option like this impact the quality of life of these people?
1: I think it'll certainly provide a, a, definitely a psychological component. Um, the, the data is is showing to be pretty promising for this prophylactic treatment, and uh, it does last uh, up to six months. And I think that uh, the quality of life is is certainly improved. Is a specific treatment for for them. It addresses the deficiencies in their immune system and. I always say, you know what, like, why are they, why am I getting the same vaccine as somebody whose immune system is, is completely uncoupled and not functioning? They need something specific to them. So I think that that is a really good feeling. And obviously the data shows that they'll have some good protection and so that they can... You know, join indoor family gatherings and and not worry about masking and and, and numbers and um, it certainly will improve quality of life to to help them get to the place that we all want to get back to uh, where we were prior to the pandemic.
0: Great, uh, thanks so much, Ajit. Is there anything else that you'd like to add in terms of the pharmacist role within all of this?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's been great. So thank you, Anna, for for hosting me on on the show. And the uh, last thing I want to mention is, is two things. Um, one is the, the pharmacist's role for the administration of vaccines and other drugs is, is just been is highlighted so much. And one of the, the, I guess, the unfortunate collaterals of the COVID-19 pandemic is sort of the, you know, the limitations and restrictions and lack of primary care follow-up. So the usual care people got, a lot of the resources, and understandably so because it's a crisis, have been diverted to COVID. And, and we're starting to see those other things like mental health, physical health, um, and even immunocompromised individuals, um, cancer care, access to specialists, surgeries. So the, the unfortunate consequence of high burdens of COVID on the hospital is cancellation of surgeries. So all of these things, as they start to come back, I don't. I think the there's no time that the system in healthcare has, has needed collaboration. And that is... Leveraging very qualified individuals like pharmacists, having them work with physicians. I mean, team based care is the only way forward. And that's the slogan of, uh, of, of my podcast with Dr. Christine Palme. So she's a, a family physician based in Ontario. Uh, I'm a pharmacist based in BC. And we talk about strategies to collaborate between pharmacists and physicians. And that podcast is available on all platforms Google, Apple, and Spotify.
0: Well, that's great. I'm excited to go take a look at that, Ajit. And uh, I really appreciate your time with us today. It's been really informative and helpful. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.